John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old and have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Mary Kay, so much for reading God's word for us. My name is Paul Brandis, and I get the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors. And before we dive into that text, just a couple of quick uh, upcoming happenings in the life of our church. We'll have a chance for some more of that at the end, but a couple of things that I wanted to uh, bring you up to speed on. And the first uh, you may have heard about is a, is a class that we're doing this fall. We last week talked about perspectives. We've got something else that's happening as well this fall that we're really excited about. This is Church for Monday, and confusingly, it's happening on Wednesdays, okay? So try to keep up with us. Uh, but this class has really been core to who Christ's community is, has who we have been for a really really long time. And the quickest way I can describe this class is that it's a nine-week discipleship journey that is designed to equip you for your Monday life. Now, there's a metaphor in there, right? I mean, the class happens on a Wednesday, so we don't mean Monday literally in this instance, but Monday for us is sort of the rest of life. It's the rest of our callings, our placements, where God has invited us and encouraged and sent us to be. That's our Monday life. And so we've got a nine-week discipleship pathway that's designed to equip you for all that your Monday life has. Uh, and it's also anchored around our values as a church. So we have five values as a church. Cross, uh, that's there. Uh, yoke, uh, that's there, right? Cross, yoke, Bible, that's about we're about to study this morning. Church, we're sitting in it, but we mean more than just the building. Certainly we mean more than just the building there. And city, which fans out into a couple of sub-values. And so that's really the curriculum for Church for Monday is digging into our core values and how they and how we understand them equip us for our Monday lives. Uh, it's not just straight lecture, it's roundtable format. And so we'll be in this room and uh, there'll be table leads.
leaders and kind of the same group of people at the table. There will be some lecture and teaching from me and Pastor Nathan mostly, and then some encouragement to discuss and kick around these uh, ideas that have shaped who Christ's community is from the very beginning. So it begins Wednesday, September 14th. Uh, it's nine weeks long, so it runs kind of right before uh, Thanksgiving. And the time on that uh, screen is indicating that there's actually an optional like family meal that we're going to do uh, for 30 to 40 minutes before class starts. So uh, come at 545, we'll, we'll have a meal figured out um, each and every week. And then child care is available starting at 615 and class will get going 620, 630, right in that range and then runs until 8 p.m. So some of you are already signed up for this. You've heard from me over email or you've seen it in the weekly update email, but wanted to also, we haven't yet talked about it really in this space. Uh, and so wanted to take a couple of minutes to explain what this is. Feel free to ask me any questions you have about this. Uh, all of our campuses do this every fall. We haven't the last couple years um, because we had a lot going on in our church life the last couple years, but I'm excited to get restarted with this uh, and relaunch into Church for Monday this fall. The second uh, is coming up even quicker than this. It's actually next Sunday. So Sunday, August 7th, we have, we haven't done one of these in a while. We've had a membership meeting and dinner, uh, and we already have a ton of you signed up for this. And so this is for anyone that has any interest in being a member. So it's not, I'm ready 110% to go. It can be that, but it's also, hey, like I'd like to explore more about this church. I've thought about this idea maybe of becoming a member, but I, I have a lot of questions about that. It's for any of that range, right? And membership to me, this is how I talk about it a little bit. It's like, you can, you can date the church, but are you ready to get married to the church? Like, you know, it's like you're dating, maybe you're engaged, you're getting serious, but it's this idea that maybe we might, all of us together, sort of enter into a covenant relationship with one another as opposed to more of a contractual or transactional relationship is one of the ways, one of the metaphors that we use to talk about membership. So I just, I couldn't be more excited for this. We've, we've got almost 40 adults signed up for this. Um, and so, yeah, if you're one of them, thank you. If you're not, consider it. Um, if you're not a member, uh, we're going to start with a, a meeting portion, and that is it's hopefully not going to be as boring as meetings can be, right? It's going to be uh, hopefully an engaging time with one another in this room. We'll flip it and have round tables again uh, with one another from 4 to 5.30, child care available. And then we'll get some blind box barbecue out there and we'll bring it back and we'll close down uh, the time together with uh, dinner. And so that's, uh, and dinner's provided. So all you got to do is sign up. Uh, so this is next Sunday, August 7th. And uh, again, any questions uh, let me know. But that's enough on both of those. Hopefully that's enough information. Right now, what I want to do is engage together that awesome text that Mary Kay just read. And to do that well, to engage God's Word well, we need God's help. So let's pray one more time and ask God to help us in understanding His Word. Father, indeed, we can't understand Your Word without Your help. And so help us this morning, Lord, because we want to know. We want to know the truth, just like Johnny was saying. We believe the actual truth can actually set us actually free. And so we want that desperately. And so provide it to us this morning, Lord, for our good, for our growth, and for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, maybe you've, you've noticed this with me. I, I love the long history of people exploding into public view in extraordinary ways. I love sort of studying and understanding the history of that. And this certainly is happening now in our current moment, isn't it? I mean, it's not necessarily even hard to go viral, right? I mean, remember when to, for a YouTube video to go viral, it only used to have a million views? Like now, you know, YouTube videos have hundreds of millions of views at a different moment. But certainly in our current 
iteration of 2022 of living out this thing that we're doing here on the globe, it's not hard for somebody to explode into the public view in an extraordinary way, but I promise you this was happening before the internet. Like, I promise you this was happening before YouTube, before Twitter, and and one of my favorite examples from history, and you've heard me maybe even mention him before, is Alexander Hamilton. And and I will also admit that I didn't, like, think a lot about Alexander Hamilton in my life uh, a ton before the smash uh, hit from Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, Hamilton the Musical. That is when I really started to think about Alexander Hamilton. And yes, I know that the musical took some historic liberties, but if you start to drill down into his actual story, I think he fits the definition of someone who exploded from some sort of seemingly nowhere into public view in this extraordinary way, and he did it without the help of social media algorithms, right? I mean, by like almost any definition, he had this historic, like this meteoric rise and, and, and fall. He didn't even live to be 50. Like Burr, the sitting vice president, by the way, shot him dead when he was 47 years old. And Washington, George Washington, made him treasury secretary of the entire United States in his early 30s. Like, y'all, I'm in my early 30s. I'm not ready for that. I don't, you don't want me to be Treasury Secretary, right? And even a couple years before he's made Treasury Secretary, it's the, it's, the 19, it's the 1787 Constitutional Convention. And Hamilton's there as a delegate from, New, a junior delegate, track that, a junior delegate, not even a senior delegate from the state of New York. He's at the, he's with the heavyweights of the Founding Fathers, Right? He's in the room with Ben Franklin. He's in the room with Washington. And it seems that even as a 29-year-old, he explodes and tries to dominate the room. There's a moment where he gets up and gives a six-hour speech proposing his own form of government, how the United States should choose to govern themselves. And I love how the musical captures this moment. It records a couple of different characters responding to Hamilton at the Constitutional Convention. And one of them is, bright young man. And the other one is this, yo, who the heck is this? Yo, who the heck is this? And, and here it is. Get ready to track with me for a moment. This line makes me think of the end of John 8. Now, I, that's weird, I know, but like stick with me for a moment, okay? This line makes me think of the end of John chapter 8. It doesn't it sound a little bit like the question that is posed to Jesus in our text this morning? At the end of John 8.53, this question right here on the lips of those who are in dialogue with Jesus, what do they say to him? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? There are some people that are so gifted, so extraordinary, so exceptional that when they come into public view, it's almost like we're taken aback. It's almost like we don't quite have a category for a type of human like this. Now folks, please hear me this morning. By literally any estimation, Jesus was that type of person. By literally any estimation, Jesus was that type of person. I mean, seriously, go back over the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, over and over and over again, those that encounter Jesus are flabbergasted by him and how he lived his life. Many are frustrated with him. Certainly that's on display in our passage this morning. A few become followers, but virtually all, it's hard to think of an exception to this, virtually all have an intensely strong reaction to Jesus because he was just that kind of, 
of person exploding once he exploded from obscurity, right? 30 years almost in the carpenter's shop. But when he went, he went. When he exploded, he exploded. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. And here is where the first problem comes in for us, for many of us, I think. Certainly, I struggle with this. What I observe in our current moment is not that. What I observe in our current moment is that many of us are more or less bored with Jesus. Many of us, we're apathetic towards him. Ho-hum, no big deal. Jesus, been there, been done that, right? And I think this happens for different reasons. For church folks, I wonder if our boredom usually grows from the seed of familiarity. Our boredom with Jesus, our apathy towards Jesus grows from the seed of familiarity. It's like, it's like Jesus has become that, that, that pile of junk in the corner of your house and you've walked by it so many times that what, you don't notice it anymore. It's just blended in with the surroundings. Like Jesus can become that to us. If we're not careful, if we've been around a while, if we think we've got this Jesus thing on lockdown, it can be like that pile of junk in the corner of our house that blends in so much that we just walk right on by. The seed of familiarity. We're used to Jesus, and so we're bored with Jesus. Or here's another way this happens. Here's another angle into how you might become bored with Jesus. This is a bit different than the seed of familiarity, and this is something that I observed often in the lives of the college students that I spent the last three years serving, most of whom wouldn't even say that they were Christians. They would not say they were followers of Jesus. But they are bored with Jesus because they only know a caricature of Him. They only know a caricature of Him. Many of them were not familiar with the story of Scripture, so all they know about Jesus is what they have picked up from the culture or what they have learned in passing from a family member. And it was almost always a grandma, by the way. I'm serious. Like, you ask, like, well, who brought you to church when you were growing up? Oh, yeah, my grandma did, right? So it's like, this is... But they don't, they don't know the real Jesus. They know a caricature of Him. A lot of times, Jesus to them looked like this. And this just sort of depresses me. I mean, not only because this is not at all what Jesus would have looked like. He wasn't white and he certainly would not have had long hair. But it just gives off a vibe to me. This Jesus does. I just don't think it would have matched how he lived his life. This version of Jesus isn't flabbergasting anyone. This version of Jesus is not exploding onto the scene and rapturing attention. This version of Jesus is just sort of bland and boring. And I promise you, church, I promise you, Jesus was anything but bland and boring. Those have got to be the last two words we would use to describe the actual Jesus that actually walked the face of this earth. Oh man, not bland. And oh man, not boring. You know, people would ask me about my job at, at, at the college where I was serving, and I had a phrase that I designed to try to quickly explain it. It was really intentionally chosen. I would say that I get the privilege of introducing students to the beauty of Jesus and his ways. So let's just, if I can, break that down for a second. First, I saw myself as making an introduction, right? Because many of these students think that they've met Jesus but haven't. So it's like, hey, Billy, I know you, you, like, you went to church a little bit with your grandma. I know you think you've got sort of this idea of who Jesus was. You don't really know him. Like, let me make an introduction, 
Let me make an introduction, right? So I'm trying to introduce students to what then next, to the beauty of Jesus and his ways. And when I say beauty, I'm not talking about physical appearance. The prophet Isaiah actually sort of tells us Jesus probably wasn't a looker, right? He didn't, he was, there was nothing within his physical appearance to draw people for him. And and we are drawn to people with great physical appearance, right? This is Hollywood in a nutshell, but that was not Jesus. There's something else going on with him. So I'm not talking about physical appearance. I'm talking about who he was in the core of his being. You know how, you, like, you've, have you had that happen? Like, you meet someone and not thinking anything about how they look in a mirror, you walk away and you're like, that person is beautiful. That person is beautiful, right? This is Jesus, right? And it's the beauty of, Je- it's the beauty of Jesus and what? The beauty of his ways, Like, have you ever had that happen where you just experience somehow the way someone lives their life and you walk away and you're like, man, that's a beautiful life well lived. Like, this is Jesus. This is actually Jesus, right? And the implication in that phrase, his ways, too, what what is meant in that is that he lived a beautiful, he lived his life in a beautiful way and you can too. Like his life is on offer to you. His ways are on offer to you. He himself is on offer to you over and over and over again. Part of what's beautiful about Jesus and his ways is that it's open and it's invitational. And anyone can come if they humble themselves and lay themselves down. And so I want to introduce you, student, to the beauty of Jesus and his ways. Don't you want to meet him? Like, this is what I spent three years doing over and over and over again with student after student after student. And I really asked some version of this question over and over again. Hey, who do you make Jesus out to be? Who do you make Jesus out to be? This is adapted from our text, right? Jesus' opponents, they press this question in a really angering way at Jesus. Who do you make yourself out to be? And we'll get there. But I want to start with us. Who do we make Jesus out to be? Who do we make Jesus out to be? And, and folks, here's, what's happen- here's what happens when we're bored with Jesus. We're just one small step away from this really dangerous act of us making Jesus into our image rather than the other way around. That's what's supposed to happen. We, we, are mar- we marvel at the beauty of Jesus and His ways. We lay ourselves and our ways down. We come to Him, and He and His Spirit remake us into His image, into His likeness. But if we are bored with Him, then we're one step away from creating and manufacturing and forming and shaping a Jesus that is nothing more than a nicer, kinder copy of, our, copy of ourselves. Remaking Jesus into our image. And when you do that, right, what happens? Well, I'll never have to change. I'll never have to admit I'm wrong. I'll never have to reckon with how much farther I have to go because Jesus is cool with me. Because Jesus is basically me. When we're bored with Jesus, we're one step away from the mistake and actually even I'd say the grievous sin of remaking Jesus into our image rather than the other way around. And this is, this is not, like this is a danger for me. 
I mentioned last week, I've been a follower of Jesus since I was five years old. I am absolutely capable of the mistake of becoming bored with Jesus. And I am absolutely capable of the mistake of then remaking him into my, my own image, of remaking him into this lamer, like weaker, rip-off copy. It's like the Paul Brand is Jesus. Nobody wants that, right? But the, that's what I do. That's what, I'm in, that's what I'm in danger of doing. So this is not, this is for me too. I'm, I'm in danger of doing that with Jesus, and I'm in danger then. When you do that, what you do is you box Jesus in. You box Jesus in, <laughs> and Jesus, more than anyone who has ever lived on the face of the planet, explodes boxes. He just blows them to smithereens. And he was there at the beginning. There was nothing except for the triune Godhead, and, and Jesus is a part of that. It's like there's, and we're here like trying to put Jesus in little boxes. Like Jesus explodes boxes. Your box, my box, and the box of every single person that he met on the face of this earth. It's, it's like, this is why, and he's exploding the box of his opponents in John 8. And it's why they ask him, who do you make yourself out to be? Or, yo, who the heck is this? Yo, who the heck is this? Right, and that's our second question. So start with us, right? Question number one, who do we make Jesus out to be? But it's fair to ask. We'll try to do it without the anger. We'll do it without the anger this morning. But it's fair to ask, who does Jesus make himself out to be? That's worthy of our consideration this morning, right? Who does Jesus make himself out to be? It's, it's almost a different version of the question Jesus asks. I think I use this all the time in my work with the college students. Matthew 16, right? Jesus is exploring the word on the street about him and his closest friends and followers, the 12 apostles, disciples, they're reporting. Well, some say Elijah and others say uh, one of the prophets and right? John the Baptist resurrected and, and Jesus points it to them in Matthew 16. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am, right? Well, who do you make Jesus out to be? But then who does Jesus make himself out to be? Who does Jesus say he is? This is part of our process. It should be part of our process. And remember with me the context of the passage that we're studying today. We're at the end of John chapter 8, and this whole section of John, these few chapters, there are a lot of back and forth discussion and debate between Jesus and various groups of people. And slowly but surely over the course of these chapters, Jesus has been answering this question. And to answer that question, he has given us his first two formal I am statements. In John 6.35, he says, I am the bread of life. This is in the context of the follow-up after he feeds the multitude, right? And then in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, he stands up and he says, and there was a lot of light happening at this Feast of Tabernacles, and he stands up in John 8, 12, and he says, I am the light of the world. I feed the world and I give the world its light. It's not the sun, it's me. You think you need bread to survive, you think you need today's lunch, you don't, you really need me. So he gives us his first two I am statements, which even that explodes a box. Anyone else walks into your life and says, hey, I'm the bread of the world. If you want to be satisfied in your hunger, you need to consume me. Like, that is not, like, unless they can back that up, you're running away from that person, right? But so Jesus has given us his first two formal I am statements. A lot more of those are coming in the next few chapters. 
In these last couple of chapters, he's also talked openly, and he does in in this passage this morning, about how he and his heavenly Father are united, about how they are one, and about how, how his heavenly Father has sent him and is the one who glorifies him. Right, the point that Jesus makes about himself in these last couple of chapters of the book of John is that he is the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. Jesus of himself claims, I am the Messiah, which means I am the anointed and the chosen Savior of the world. I am sent by the God of heaven, by the Father in heaven, to do the Father's will and to perfectly carry out the Father's plan. This is not me importing these things into the text. This is plainly who Jesus makes himself out to be over and over again in this section. He has not really hidden that this is who he says he is. And yet, many of those present for these initial interactions, they just don't seem to get it. Which actually, we probably, we, it's more fair to say that's an understatement. They're actually really dense about this. And that the denseness continues on even into John 9 and John 10, which we're headed to in the next couple of weeks. But actually pull back with me into just the previous passage, the one we looked at last week, because Jesus gives the answer about why they don't seem to be getting it. It's John 8, 43. Why do you not understand what I say? And then it's almost, oh wait, I know, I know, I know why you don't understand what I say. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You cannot bear to hear my word. Those present don't understand what Jesus is saying because they cannot bear to hear his word. They cannot bear to reckon with his truth. It's too difficult. It's too uncomfortable. Frankly, it's too offensive. This is John 8.43. Just read one more verse. John 8.44 is the verse where Jesus tells them that their father is the devil. So yes, of course, it's too offensive and they can't bear with it. They can't come to grips with it. They don't have what it takes to be challenged in that sort of way and submit to the challenge. And it just makes us wonder about me and you. Can we bear with Jesus's word? That's part of not making him into our own image. Actually, it's maybe right at the very center of it. Not making Jesus into our own image means we need to bear with his word, even when it's hard and difficult and when it offends us in the way we live our lives. Can we do that? I don't know. Can we? But jump with me back into our passage, right? They, they certainly can't bear to hear Jesus' word. This is why they, there's so much difficulty and denseness in them in terms of understanding who this person is that is standing right in front of them. So they, they can't bear with his word, and instead they shift, and they just levy another like ridiculous, over-the-top accusation against him. John 8, 48. The Jews answered him. First verse of our passage. Are we not right in saying that you you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They cannot bear to hear the truth from Jesus. And since the truth that he is telling them is that their father is the devil, they're like, no, stop, wait a second. We are are the chosen people of God. So it's not us that's wrong. It must be you that's wrong, Jesus. Abraham is our father. Our father is not the devil. It must be your father who is the devil. You are demon-possessed. It's not us that has the father of the devil. It's you. You have a demon. And and don't miss the, the racist 
comment that they throw at him either. The racist insult, right? For a Jew to call another Jew a Samaritan in that cultural moment, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In the last passage, remember this, they implied that he was improperly born out of wedlock, and now they cast racist dispersion on his ethnicity and tell him that he's possessed by a demon. And Jesus, like, he doesn't even pick up the Samaritan ball, right? Like, that is horrific towards him and towards an entire group of beautiful image bearers, by the way. And Jesus just sort of lets it off, right? He just leaves it there, and this is how he instead responds, with grace, with patience, again and again and again. And this is where, this is another moment where Jesus ought to explode our boxes. How are you responding if you're Jesus in this moment? I don't know that I've got a lot of grace. I don't know that I have a lot of patience. And this has been happening and happening and happening. And yet Jesus again and again and again, and even here in the rest of this passage, responds with grace and patience towards these people. He definitely challenges them, but he also responds with grace and patience. Let's take a look at his response and how the rest of this flows uh, towards the end of this chapter. Verse 49, Jesus answered this horrific challenge against him. I do not have a demon. But I honor my Father, and yet you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one, capital O, right? There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I really mean this. I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, they died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Sort of like, I'm not inflating myself up. I'm not pumping myself up. But rather, but rather, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. But you actually, you haven't known Him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple and seen. I mean, this is incredible, isn't it? With that last bit, I love that, of Jesus hiding himself and then departing from the temple without being murdered. It's, it's almost certain, right, that something divine is happening a bit of miraculous protection. This was not yet Jesus' time to be killed, to be murdered. And so even though the clear intent of murder is present, as those who are in the crowd pick up stones to kill Jesus, even though the intent of murder is present, the act of murder is held back, which is just incredible to me. And I wonder if you noticed with me, I'm sure you did, how much talk of Abraham there was in these verses. How much talk of Abraham there was. Abraham is first mentioned by Jesus' listeners 
back earlier in John 8, verse 33, remember where they bristle at Jesus' implication that they are not truly free. We are offspring of Abraham. How is it that you can say that we are not truly free? And so then these two sections of the Gospel of John seem like kind of one flowing, ongoing conversation, even as our Bibles break it up with a new section heading. It seems like Abraham gets introduced, and then they talk a lot more about Abraham in our passage. This is one sort of continuous engagement and conversation. And I do think, because of the centrality of Abraham towards the end of this chapter, that it's, it's worthwhile for us to spend, to pause and just slow down and spend just a minute talking this morning about Abraham. Because if we don't, I think we're going to overlook some really important elements of what's happening here. I think we'll overlook why it is that this is the first moment where those present with Jesus, they move from frustration and anger, those that are that way with him, they move from frustration and anger to trying to murder him. Like, why? That's a big, you can be frustrated and angry with someone, but now, like, I'm over here and I'm trying to murder them. That's a jump, right? And so, Abraham is central to that jump. So, let's, let's slow down and consider the person of Abraham. We have to back up. Abraham first comes onto the scene in our Bibles at the end of Genesis chapter 11. He's introduced at the end of chapter 11 as the son of Terah. And just a programming note on the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they are massively important as a backdrop and a foundation, not just to the book of Genesis, but for the entire Bible. In so many different ways, those first 11 chapters of our Bibles, they set the scene for everything that is to come after. They introduce themes, they hint at promises, they give vital, important clues about where this huge, big story is heading. Don't sleep on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. You'll miss so much if you do. And within the book of Genesis, 50 chapters total, right, the first 11 chapters, chapter 11 to 12 functions as this massively important hinge moment within the flow of the book of Genesis. The idea here is that God, in in shifting from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, is He's about to do something really new and really different and really central to His overall plan. And all of it this massive, right, backdrop, foundation, this hinge moment, all of it centers on this person of Abraham. At this point, he's named just Abram. Here is the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12. And keep in mind, right, this is the opening salvo of this new moment in God's big story. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, listen to the promises here, folks, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, even before we break this down just for a moment, right, God speaks to Abraham He condescends to speak to Abraham, which in and of itself is this miraculous grace gift. And beyond sort of the the, the broaching of speaking to Abraham, he then goes on to choose Abraham. He selects him. He plucks him. He redeems him. He saves him. He directs him. He guides him, right? He commands him. And catch this, it's all over these verses. What does he promise to do? Bless him. 
to bless him, and, and yes, absolutely, to bless him, and through that blessing, bless all the families of the world, but starting with Abram, starting with him and his family and his people and his nation, there is this incredible promise in Genesis 12 to bless him. Folks, this is the moment of the inauguration of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel. Before this, right? Before God called and formed and shaped Abraham and his family into this people, into this nation, into this chosen group, before that, they did not exist. He was a foreigner living in the land of Ur. And God plucks him out, right? It's you and your family. It all started here in this moment. This is the origin story. Okay, right? So now go back with me. Catch all that about Abraham. And go back with me to Jesus' original listeners who are part of God's chosen people. The Israelites. The Jews, right? You're there in John 8. Man, think about... Think about how meaningful Abraham would have been to you. Seriously, let's try to picture ourselves as one of them. Think about how much you would have been, especially in the midst of your hardship and your your suffering of Roman occupation. You are over and over, every hour of every day, you are clinging to the Genesis 12 promise that God hasn't forgotten us. He promised Abraham. He promised Father Abraham. We are the people of who? Of, yes, Isaac and Jacob, but who was their dad? Abraham first, right? This is who we are. Yes, David. Oh man, we've got David. Wow, he was a great king. And Moses, absolutely. Let, God chose him to lead us out of slavery in Egypt. 430 years, right? Moses, absolutely. And then they mention it in this. And all the prophets, All the prophets, oh man, the people, the messengers that God has sent to us. But it all started with Abraham. It all began with him right there. Think of that with me. Abraham, he must have been an untouchable person. Almost like mythical, right? It all began with Abram. And then what does Jesus say? Catch all that. And then what does Jesus say? Verses 56 through 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. I know he's great in your minds. I'm greater. He rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50. Can you do math, Jesus? Like this was a while ago. You're not even 50. How is it that you have seen Abraham. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And I just, I, I, I sort of think about it. It's like, man, if I had been there, I might have picked up a rock too. If I had been there, I might have picked... Because it's also, this is such a clear moment, right? It's a weird phrasing. Before Abraham was, I am. Like it's sort of, it's, do you know math and do you know how to speak, Jesus, right? It's like a little weird, but what is Jesus doing? It's what he's been doing when he says, I am the bread of life. It's what he's been doing when he says, I am the light of the world, right? 
But there's no mistaking it here. When he says, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he is drawing back to God's divine name. In Exodus 3.14, so Moses, another titan of the faith, is talking to the burning bush. God in that moment is choosing Moses to be the deliverer of his people out of Egypt. And Moses asks, asks a great question. It's not just me doing this. When I get there, who do I say sent me? Who do I say sent me? And God replies, tell them that I am has sent you. I am. I was from the beginning. I am right now and I will be to the end of the age. I am. This is what Jesus is doing in his formal I am statements. Right, and we're about to see a whole lot more of those. And this is what Jesus is doing in John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, I am. He is leaving nothing to doubt. So we have to ask again, our second question, who does Jesus make himself out to be? Well, in Jesus' own words from this passage, he is the I am. He is I am. He is the eternal Son of God standing there in the flesh. So first, who do we make Jesus out to be? Well, we tend to make and shape Jesus into our own image, don't we? But second, who does Jesus make himself out to be? The eternal I am, the Son of God, come to save the world. Who do we make Jesus out to be? In our own image. Who does Jesus make himself out to be? The eternal I am, the Son of God, come to save the world. And here's our third and final question this morning. Who does Jesus make us out to be? Who do we make Jesus out to be? Who does Jesus make himself out to be? And, and, and who does Jesus make us out to be? Church, what happens if we stop making Jesus into our own image? What happens to us if we surrender ourselves and our ways to Jesus and his ways? What happens if we give over and allow him to remake us into his image as opposed to the other way around? And I don't know if you saw it when we skated by earlier or when Mary Kay read it, but there is an incredible promise in this passage from Jesus. A beautiful promise that he gives us in John 8, 51. Jesus there says, truly, truly. He's like, hey, I really mean this. Hey, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. Truly, truly, if anyone keeps my words, he or she will never see death. This is the promise on offer to Jesus in this passage, to you and to I, and I don't, I don't want to skate by it. I did intentionally before, but now I want to sit in it with you. Do you need this promise this morning? I've been thinking a lot, and I've mentioned her a bunch already, but I've been thinking a lot about my beautiful Aunt Barbie. Got to picture. This is my beautiful Aunt Barbie. I shared that uh, she went home to be with Jesus a few weeks ago. I got the honor of doing her homegoing service, and I watched her live. I mean, right, what did I say? Have you ever met someone that lives a beautiful life? That's my aunt right there. And um, so I got the, pr the privilege of living her life, but then I do the work in leading her funeral service, right, of sort of going back over it and preparing to, to honor her in that space. And I can promise you, what, what does Jesus say? If anyone keeps my word, okay, G my Aunt Barbie kept Jesus' word. She, she kept Jesus' 
word. She believed it with her whole heart and her whole life. She lived it. She cleaved to it. She remained and abided in it. She persevered in it. By any way you want to approach the idea of keeping Jesus's word, my Aunt Barbie did that. But that sort of leads to this obvious question that we have to deal with, right? How then did she come to pass away? I, I, like, we need to ask that, right? Because Jesus says pretty plainly, if you keep my word, you will never see death. And yet, like I was at her homegoing service. I led it. So how is it if she kept Jesus' word? It seems, right? It seems as though Jesus is clearly saying that you won't see death. So what's going on here? Well, Colin Cruz, a scholar and author on the Gospel of John, he says this. It helps us. He says, it is clear that this did not mean that those who believed would not experience physical death. For obviously, all but the last generation will do so. Rather, this promise from Jesus meant that the eternal life, which people experience now through belief in Jesus, will not be interrupted by physical death. As Jesus says later in John 11, the one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Go back one slide. Because it's this highlighted phrase right here. Like, stick with me on this. The eternal life which people experience now through belief in Jesus will not be interrupted by physical death. I love this. Like, I cannot get enough of this. When we believe in Jesus and when we keep his word, we are granted the gracious gift, none of us deserve this, of eternal life. And it's an eternal life that starts now. It starts here. It begins right now, right here. The moment that we give over of ourselves to Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, congrats, you're living eternal life right now. If you are keeping his word, if you are cleaving to it, congrats, right now, in this moment, in 2022, in Shawnee, Kansas, you are living the eternal life. And the promise from Jesus is that even when you experience physical death, which is coming for all of us, even in that horrific, tragic, hard moment, your eternal life does not pause for one second. It just keeps right on going. You're living it now, and you will never see death in the ultimate spiritual sense if you keep Jesus at his word. Oh, like that is why I sing at my Aunt Barbie's homecoming going service. That's why I praise Jesus. Because her eternal life, it didn't, wasn't even, it didn't stop at all, ever. So, so who does Jesus make us out to be? Who does Jesus make us out to be? If, if you believe in him and keep his word, if you allow him to remake you into his image rather than the other way around, if you are like my beautiful Aunt Barbie, then, then do you know who Jesus makes you? Do you know? Who does Jesus make you out to be? A conqueror over death. A conqueror over death. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that even though we make you into, we make your son Jesus into our own image, you are still gracious and patient with us. Thank you so much that Jesus was clear about who he is and was and will be. Thank you so much that there is a pathway to becoming a conqueror over death, and it's not our pathway, Lord, it's Jesus's. 
Thank you for him and his ways, the beauty of him and his ways. And may we give ourselves over to it, Lord. May we give ourselves over to it for the first time and then every time, every moment of every day. More of you, less of us. More of Jesus, less of us. We pray this all in his holy and matchless and incredible name. Amen. You know, I can't get enough of a resource that came out a few years ago, maybe five or six years old. It's called the New City Catechism. The New City Catechism. And I put this picture up because I want you to know it's got a phenomenal app. If you want to download this later, just search New City Catechism. Now, catechism is kind of a big, fancy church word. Essentially, catechesis or a catechism, it's a question and answer resource that's designed to help, and you'll see here, design both children and adults to learn the core doctrines and teaching of what it means to follow Jesus, of the Christian faith. And in a moment, we're about to go to Jesus's table. We're about to go to communion. And as we prepare to do so, I'd love to invite us to anchor ourselves in three questions and three answers from this resource that help us better understand who Jesus is. That's what we've just spent the last like tons of minutes talking about, right? And these question and answers, they beautifully help us to understand that. There's a lot of different ways you can start a catechism. There's great catechisms from the history of the faith that start in, in very great ways. I love the way that the organizers started this catechism. It's with the question, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? The whole resource starts right there. That's question one. So we're going to ask and answer that. And then I've got two more, questions 19 and questions 20. And I'll serve as the leader. I'll go ahead and I'll pose the questions and then we will respond to them together if we choose to do so. And after we say each answer, I'm going to give just a brief moment of pause because I want to give you a chance to chew on what we have just confessed together if you choose to do this with us. So first, here's the first. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We can go to the second question, question 19. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes, to satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and deliver us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a redeemer. And I want to know, so let's see the next question. Who is the redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Amen and amen. Who is the Redeemer? There's only one. It's Jesus Christ. 